Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm Research Director and um, here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which uh, allows me to host this uh, terrific seminar. Uh, here at the Women in Public Policy Program, we are focused on closing gender gaps in the area of economic opportunity, political participation health and education. Um, I'm very excited to introduce uh, this week's speaker. Uh, Denise Lewin Lloyd is an associate professor of management at the University of Illinois. Denise is someone who is, actually I'll start off by, um, I think we have a couple of doctoral students who were able to um, talk with Denise last night and they were describing how in their first year of the doctoral program they got to hear a talk by Denise and it was this like, high moment. They're like, this is so cool. Um, this is a woman with very cool ideas. She's a very cool person, but she's also good. She really does have very important ideas, particularly related to how do we really think about managing diversity. I mean, I think a lot of us are bought into this idea that we, that we want, number one, we just simply live in more diverse workplaces, and this is just part of life. Um, but I think most of us are also sort of bought into the idea that we should be um, working in diverse work groups and that, it, that, it, that it's beneficial to us. Um, but in all candor, it doesn't always work, um, and it really, it, you have to be thoughtful about it. And Denise has been one of these people who really opens our eyes to some of the dynamics that, you know, kind of rub us or we struggle with without being consciously aware of what's going on. And she's one of those people that kind of gives us lenses um, of insight into the dynamics of diverse groups. And this is one, this paper is one wonderful example of this. So I'm really excited. I'll just turn over the floor. Please warmly welcome. Uh, thank you so much, Hannah. And to my friends in the back, like, come on yeah, down. We got a couple seats here. Like yeah, the price is right. Yeah, yeah. There's another seat. Yeah, just yeah. fill in. There's one at the table. Here, yeah. yeah. I want you to be able to see the side view here. Um, so thank you so much, Hannah. I'm truly delighted to be here. I really appreciate the invitation to come and share my ideas with this group because it's such an interdisciplinary group. It's not the kind of audience that I usually have the opportunity to speak to, and so I really want to hear about what resonates with you in this work, and to plant the seed now for us all to be thinking about, okay, so given what I'm about to share with you, like, what can we do with this? How do we, what could, you know, what are the policy implications or organizational implications for this? Because that's something that I've been thinking a lot about, but that's not the focus of this. It's just sort of like, Here's this problem, you know, like what are we going to do with it? So today I'm going to be talking about uh, this idea, two heads better than one, uh, the dynamics uh, of minority subgroups within teams. And I thought I'd start by talking a little bit about what brought me to this. So this is collaborative work that I'm doing with a couple of colleagues. Uh, and we all were talking about experiences both having been solos in set settings and duos and started realizing that all of our duo experiences were not necessarily universally more positive. So this was the impetus for us of like, oh, we, let's explore this a little bit more. So I thought I would actually start by sharing a little bit of my own story uh, with you all. So I don't know if anyone in the room knows that in my past life, I was a civil engineer. So my background civil engineering, I have bachelor's and master's degrees in civil engineering. And before I decided to go into academia and get a PhD in organizational behavior, maybe in part because of, uh, I worked in the construction industry. 
Now, the construction industry is not one that's known for its gender diversity or sort of diversity in a lot of dimensions. And this was not any different. So this is a job site that I worked on. And yes, that is me, <laughs> working with these gentlemen. And as a solo in this group, I was the only female manager, project manager, uh, at the company in the Chicago office. I certainly felt my solo-ness. Um, I certainly interacted with many individuals through like the lens of gender, they talked about my clothes, and just like, you know, and it wasn't usually so positive. One particular story that was powerful for me was while I was working here, I got married. When I got married, I changed my name from Denise Nicole Lewin to Denise Lewin Lloyd. And uh, started to refer to myself as Denise Lewin Lloyd, non-hyphenated, as you guys can see. And this was like mind-blowing, right, for my male colleagues. It was just like, what do you, what is that? Like, what are you using all those names for, right? <laughs> so I remember coming to one meeting where, you know, everybody gathered to sort of check in on how the project was going, and two senior male colleagues of mine were talking to me as people were filtering in the room, and they're like, oh, you know, how long are you going to use all those names? <laughs> most of my life, I don't know. <laughs> um, and the, the one says to the other one, not to me, like, oh no, he says, I bet you won't, in three years you won't be, you know, using those names. And the other one's like, three years she's gonna be home with the kids. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was clear that my gender, right, stood out in that context. Well, I was really excited because one day I learned that another woman was joining the firm and the management level. Totally excited. And I was excited, in part because I was, you know, just like, maybe she'll be a friend and someone that I can interact with. But I was also really excited because I thought her presence would help my male colleagues not see me as much just through the lens of gender. So in thinking about this question, like other people have actually thought a little bit about these questions, right, for, for quite some time, particularly thinking about the negatives of being a solo, right, that they, you're subject to these pressures, we call them token pressures of being very visible and being stereotyped and trying to be assimilated into the majority. And this can actually result in performance issues. <coughs> and now we know even you know, stereotype threat, which uh, there's some evidence that when you're the only one, it's even more pronounced for you in that context. But when we think about moving from being the solo to being a duo, much as my you know, happiness of the, knowing this other person was joining, there's some assumption that there's actually a positive linear relationship. A lot of the subgroup uh, dynamics have been studied in the context of uh, proportions, right? So as we move from, you know, women, let's say, being 10% to 20 or 30% of a group, how does that affect things? And there has been some evidence that there can't, you know, there's more of this linear trend, right? Up to a point, right, when maybe it become a threat. But at the smaller levels, there is this linear trend. So some level we ex expect this right incrementally but I think it's really important to look at the context incrementally because from my experience we experience diversity in a context right in a small group context in a room in a meeting it's not that there's 12% women on this you know campus or right it's sort of like in this room there are two of us or I'm the only one so that's also partly why I'm interested in looking at it in this way so you may assume this is a direct linear relationship. Every additional member is going to be better, I'll feel less isolated, and I'll have less of these pressures. 
So the first thing we thought we would do is just see, you know, do other people actually think this? So we did a short scenario, and I should say a couple of things before I go forward. One, uh, the type of work that we do is experimental. It's very much based in the social psychology paradigm, and I know that's not going to be common for everyone in the group, so please do stop me if you have questions about you know, what I did or why I did. And in general, I'm happy to take questions right, as we have our conversation. I would like some questions. First, okay. <laughs> you have a conversation. Okay, so we said, imagine yourself as a management trainee in a work group of 14, so it's a student population, and we had two conditions. Either you're going to imagine yourself as the only man or woman in the group, or you're one of two men or women in the group. So we have 228 students, and we just asked them, how much token pressure would you feel? So on a scale of one to seven, how visible, stereotyped, focused on your gender would you feel, which we collapsed. And then for a subsample of 100, we also asked them how comfortable they think they would feel. And what we found is uh, that the people who were imagining themselves being a solo thought they would feel significantly more token pressure than individuals who expected to be a duo, right? So it's like there is this belief that it's gonna be better. And for the individuals that we gave them the comfort question, we found a positive correlation between feeling token pressure and feeling uncomfortable, right? So token pressure is not a positive. All right. So yeah, we're, we're bought in. People think this. But not so much. Yes. Can yes. I ask you a quick question? Absolutely. Um, were you surprised by the magnitude of the effect or the lack of magnitude of the effect? So if you had asked me and maybe yes. others in this room beforehand, how big do I think the effect is? I gotcha. would have thought it's big. It's very big. It's like two it would be, points right, on right, scale right, right, or something right. like that. So I'm almost a little surprised. So like, it's not right? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is I'm always happy to get an effect. Let's <laughs> start with that. Yeah, I'm right? completely with you. I'm <laughs> asking question. Now I'm uh, talking as a human being also. <laughs> you know, would I have expected right. this? Um, probably I would have expected it to be stronger, but. It's interesting. I, um, I don't think, I, I didn't think a lot about what I, the magnitude would be, right? I, I would say in my work in general, both this and other work that I do, the effects are more subtle oftentimes. And part of it, I think, is um, the topics that I, add, you know, the kinds of questions that I raise, it's not stuff that we really want to think about all of the time, right? So we, we want to believe that we wouldn't feel these things. So I do think that there's sometimes a dampering effect. Um, and this is part of what I, my challenge as I try to do this work and figure out how to ask people these questions in a way that they can feel comfortable and honest responding uh, to those questions. So yeah, for me, I didn't really have. You aren't surprised. Yeah, but. Was there any gender gap in the responses to this question? So there was not a gender gap, yes, in the responses to the question. Um, did you have them imagine the situation they would be in? Because I feel like that was what we were talking about last night. Like, if it's a stereotypic situation, that would be very yeah. different than if it's a neutral or yeah. Like, so this was like you know, students who would be considering like a summer internship. So that was the context. Like, you're a trainee in this program. I think I would. It's hard to say. I have to say it also in my work looking at gender with undergraduate women in particular, there's less of a sense of status difference for them. And, and I understand, I mean, now we know that on campuses, women are you know, more prevalent oftentimes than men, I mean, you know, slightly. Um, and they haven't experienced 
the workplace to the same extent and some of the life issues that we know are part of the gender story. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's partly why. Okay, so we see this relationship. Discomfort's not necessarily positive, but there's also some anecdotal evidence to the contrary, so not just my experience and my colleagues, but even Cantor, when she talked about in her seminal work the issue of proportions, she actually talked a little bit about being two and thinking that two may reduce some stresses, but it may not be sufficient, really, to overcome the situation of being in the minority. There's some work by Conrad and Kramer where they looked at women on boards of directors, and one of the takeaways that they had was that two women may be perceived as a separate group, find they have to be careful not to appear conspiring, right? And they may be more easily sort of confused with each other. And even on the Supreme Court, there's some evidence from Justice Ginsburg. So Justice Ginsburg talks about having been confused with Justice O'Connor at least once per term <laughs> um, when they were the only two women on the court, which is kind of sort of ridiculous on the face for a couple of reasons. One, they don't look anything alike. Right? They're not really ideologically similar. And are you the person arguing before the Supreme Court and confusing these people, right? I mean, really? Like, this is just a bad idea. So even with that, you know, that happened and that she was hoping that when a third female justice joined that the days of sort of being seen as curiosities would be over. So there's some anecdotal evidence that's not necessarily better. This is guiding the research question here. Are minority duos perhaps subject to more token pressure? Here we're looking at stereotyping than solos or people who are in subgroups of three. So before I go forward, this is the beginning. And so I want to look out some, you call them boundary conditions, or just you know, assumptions that we're sort of holding for now. So I'm thinking about a small group context. Um, you know, jury, committee, task force, some things like that, or board, right, important context. The DOO represents the clear minority. So I'm not talking about situations where it's you know, a five-person group and you're two out of five, right? Um, we don't have a hard and fast rule for where the tipping point might be, but certainly I thought if the addition of one more woman would now put you in equality or in the majority, you know, it's harder, right, to make the case that that could be a different experience. So they're in the, the distinct minority or clear minority. And for now, we I do think that task type matters, right? I mean, certainly... Uh, what we're not agnostic about is for women to have a negative impact of stereotyping, the context is likely to be a more masculine context. But besides that, is it a decision-making task, is it a production task? You'll see that the studies look at different types of tasks. We're fairly agnostic, but if you have feelings about what types of tasks may be more likely for this to occur, I'm more than happy to hear about it and talk about it. And. For now, the first two studies I'll present are going to be around gender and stereotyping, and then hopefully we have time for the third, which brings in the question of race as well, just as a starting point. So, study one, without further ado. So what we wanted to do was really um, you know, eliminate right, the question of whether it's a behavioral issue, right? whether the people are actually doing something different that's causing this different perception. And as I said, it's a collaborative effort, so we decided, you know what, we'll show people a group, and we will give them a 
tell them the group's task is to make a decision. So they'll see this group and they'll read about a series of uh, you know, points of the discussion that the group had. We'll highlight one individual in the group, which I'll talk about more, and that's going to be the target that we want them to evaluate. And one of my collaborators is a social psychologist trained, you know, background and said, you know, let's use avatars because really we don't even want issues of like how pretty this person is or whatever like coming into play. And you know, I'm not that background that was like avatars. <laughs> is that going to work? Um, I'm happy to say we, we did find effects with avatars. So even I was a little bit skeptical about the avatar thing going in, uh, but it's something that we've stuck with for now. So we used MTurk, which is an online um, site that you can collect uh, participants, which is nice because it creates a you know, more diverse sample. We were interested in the men's perception of these women, so how the majority views the minority in the group. So we've got 170 men, as you can see, 76% white, etc. You know, many working, good proportion of students. And essentially, they saw one of nine conditions. We crossed how many women in the group, one, two, or three, with the size of the group, seven, 10, or 14. Uh, because we wanted to see whether it was something about the proportion, right? That is it an interaction of the group size, or is it just something about the size of the group? Well, really, we believed it was something about the number of people in the minority. So gender stereotypes, I expect I don't have to spend a lot of time on this slide with this mm -hmm. group. Uh, so shared sets of beliefs about members of a social category, the stereotype dimensions that we looked at based on Redmond's work, uh, warm and uh, competent or agentic or potent. And essentially women are generally seen as more warm and less competent certainly compared to men. So what we, we expected is that a woman would be seen as warmer when she was part of a duo than when she was a solo or part of a group of three. So here are our beautiful avatars. <laughs> uh, we, you know, try to diminish other differences. The basic differences of the women are, you know, that they're wearing skirts, they've got red shoes, really red shoes, like a Dorothy or something, right? <laughs> Um, but otherwise, and they've, they've got long hair. Okay, so they see one of nine images of this. And the way that the study is set up, they're told there are four parts to this. The first is visual comprehension, which we use as a way to make gender more salient, where we ask, you know, how's the group arranged? They're in a circle or are they in a square? Are they wearing black or are they wearing black? And we did ask about the gender composition in the case of, of the gender study. Then we said, you're going to be evaluating one person in the group. The person you're going to evaluate is Jennifer. Then you're going to do a reading comprehension piece, which is where you hear about what the group's task is. And at the end of each section, you have to answer a question to see if you actually read the segment before, which I really liked that, making sure they actually read what was happening. Uh, then you're going to make the assessment of, Gen of Jennifer. And then we'll ask you a few questions about yourself. So just to give you a sense of what the reading comprehension was like, there were six segments, and this is an example of one of them. What they're talking about is a group task where there's a, the one company that acquires other companies, and they're trying to make a decision about which company should be acquired, right? So someone says electronics company is the best option. It's a growing field. Jennifer agrees electronics is growing, but says the power company is a good option too. 
Another person notes the power company is the oil company and is concerned about the movement towards more clean fuel, reducing future opportunities for the company. And then they're asked, right, why did you read this? Why is it a good choice? They have to get the answer right. So they saw six of these segments. Jennifer was the only person mentioned by name because we wanted to control for her behavior. In all other cases, it's like somebody else says this or that. And she's mentioned by name in four of the six segments. Then after they read that and answer correctly, they evaluate Jennifer on this scale, again developed by Redmond, that looks at potency or competence and warmth. So there's eight bipolar scales where they basically say how strong to weak is Jennifer on potency or dominant to submissive, and for warmth, how warm to cold or caring to distant. And the way that Redmond looks at the scale they consider female stereotypicality the sum of the warmth minus, minus the sum of the potency items, right? So it, it, women be tending towards the more positive side. And what do we find? So we find a main effect for the number of women in the group and not an effect for group size or an effect for the interaction. So that was encouraging for us, at least what we hope to see. Uh, we control for the level of education of the participants. And here's the result, which I will explain to you a little bit because I find this explaining a little bit confusing. So on this scale, right, if warmth is equal to potent, then you're zero, zero, right? If you're more warm, then you're on the positive side. So overall, what we found is that they found Jennifer to be more potent than warm, uh, which made sense in a way because she wasn't taking on a very warm or social role in the context, but we did find the effect that we were expecting which is that when Jennifer was a duo, she was seen as significantly warmer than when she was a solo, or received like almost minus three on the potent scale, or a member of a group of three. One thing that I want to point out is that on purpose, when we put the avatars together, we, actually I'll just go back, did not want the two next to each other. Right? We thought it was a stronger test to actually have them separated because you might imagine like, well, if the two women come in, they sit next to each other in the room or what have you. And so this is the image where there's three out of 10. When there are two, this one becomes the guy and when it's one, then right, Jennifer's always on the left. Yes. Does, does this female uh, stereotypicality, does it presume that warmth and potency are mutually exclusive? That's a good question. Um, I suppose she could be, right, both warm and potent. So if she was equally warm and potent, so it could be, both could be high, right, so that she's very warm and she's very potent, and then the stereotype would be zero for this particular scale, right, for Redmond. So, but mm -hmm. over time what they found is that most people are rating her more warm than potent, and that's the suggestion that you, the perceiver, see her as, see it more as exclusive, right, that she's warm but she's not <coughs> potent. And that's the indication of stereotyping her, right? More stereotyping her, does that make sense? Yeah, so if they're not, the scales are not set up in a way that they're opposed to each other. Okay, yeah. Is the difference between the three categories of one, two, and three a difference in how warm people thought she was or how potent she thought that she was? Have that for you. Oh, yeah. you might want to know that. Uh, so good leading question. So we broke it down into the two. Even though really the way Redmond has it set up is to look at them, you know, we thought, 
you know, we want to know that as well. So what we actually found was that she was seen as significantly warmer as a duo than a solo or a trio. And she was only seen as significantly less potent as a duo compared to a solo. So she was not less potent as a trio, or you know, there was no difference between two and three on the potency. So that the effect is, we would say, driven more by the warmth, right? That she's both warmer as a duo than a solo or one of three. This is a bummer, though. Yeah, a little bit. But well, we're going to talk in a moment about. Just like going back to your earlier slide, we, can, we won't think about that for the moment. But the um, it's really pretty interesting that they attribute warmth to her, given that there's like almost no data on warmth at all. I mean, there's nothing there. There's nothing to hinge that on, yeah. you know, other than your preconceived yeah, I mean, she's notions. Not she's not getting coffee. She's not like. Yeah, there's not. I mean, I suppose that at one point she says like, "Let's take a vote." So again, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit at dinner, right? That maybe the same behavior is interpreted differently when it's exhibited by a woman oh, sure. versus a man, right? Yeah. And so yeah. maybe something like that is like, yeah. well, let's bring the team together, right? I, I mean, I can't say what was in their heads, but I mean, we did control as much as we could for yeah. that kind That's of That's amazing you get the effect. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think in, in the next study I show you where there are people interacting with each other, those kinds of questions I think become much more um, you know, of an issue, right? Because I do think it matters. Um, in fact, I think uh, for me, you thought a little broadly about this question. And this presentation is about the perception of the majority, let's say, of those in the minority. But I've thought about the experience of being, right, the person in the minority. So let's say in the, you know, I, I won't give this example here. This is not the right one for the policy school. So I'll go back to my work example. <laughs> and I'll say, you know, this woman that I was really excited about, right, joining. Or actually, I can give an example from my own life. From last week, I was thinking, I think I'm having a duo moment right now. <laughs> So I'm at work. There's an all-faculty meeting. Uh, again, um, surprisingly, flash forward, you know, however many years from my construction days, and I'm still the only woman in my OB group out of 10 people. And I actually looked at this slide, and I'm like, one, two, three, four, 10. Damn. Here we are again. So not many women in the College of Business where I work. And we're, there's a luncheon beforehand, so all the faculty are gathered for lunch, and then there's uh, faculty meeting afterward. So I'm there. So one other black female faculty member that I, female, like, that I know. But I see this person, black female, tall, slim, attractive, but dressed like in a jumper, right? So like a shorts jumper and just not looking like my stereotypical, right, business professor image, right? Like I'm just going to own it right now. Okay. And I'm like, Okay, who's that, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I knew all the, and then she's coming into the area where the faculty are, and I literally, man, I'm owning this too, was like, is she in the right place? Like, I don't know who this person is, right? How bad of me, I'm owning it. She sits down, we go to the faculty meeting, and she's introduced as a new postdoc. Like, whoa, so I totally want to get to know this person, but my duo moment, to your point, is that, well, what does her being the other woman mean for me, the other black female? 
right? Like, I was a little bit concerned about how, you know, like this jumper thing. I mean, it was like kind of short, right? And I'm like, so when you're with the other person, how does that affect the identity you've tried to create of what it means to be this thing in this context, right? So that's part of the challenge of the duo from the similarity, right, the in-group context. And that's a, another interesting part of the duo dynamic that the other members of the group may see you two as similar and interchangeable and an entity, and you're like, no, not so much, right? Like, I, I actually, this person does not represent, right, me, and that can be a challenge, yes, yes. Yeah, in the European context, they call this the creepy effect, often, that a woman in power, I'm not accusing you. No, 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 no. Uh, it's from social psychology that a woman in power that she's not willing to share this power with another woman and she's she that that's um she uh, worked so hard to overcome yep. all these stereotypes yep. and adapted a more masculine way of working yeah so i'm not sure whether you use this prideful hypothesis as well because this is all over the public debate in in europe and like we've got to talk more. Here. We've got to talk more. <laughs> and this this speaks to this other body of work that I'm working on. Um, and my short response is, I'm definitely well aware of the Queen Bee effect. And I think my belief is that it's actually an overused explanation for things. Um, in that, what I think I was experiencing is something called collective threat. So it's, it's newer, right? There's a couple papers out in like late in 2005, six, that talk about how certain individuals may be concerned that the behavior of somebody who's like them is going to be seen as part of them, right? So I call this the, um, you know, you hear something on the news and I'm like, please don't let it be somebody black, right? Like that's that's collective threat, right? And whatever group you might belong to if you have that, like that's collective threat. Um, Queen Bee I think is very important, but I think that any time that we, not any time, too often when we see a woman not supporting another woman, and in particular with that senior to junior dynamic, we attribute it to the Queen Bee, where I have some other work that talks about this construct called favoritism threat, which basically says I may not speak out on behalf of this woman because the other members of my group are gonna see that as illegitimate favoritism, right? That like, I'm not going to be valued. They're gonna be like, right? And then unfortunately, my opinion also won't carry the weight that I hope that it carries if that's what they think. So I could be harming myself and harming this candidate. Um, but I would I'd love to talk more about that, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so you focused a lot on <coughs> You focus a lot on the duo um, versus solo and trio and things like that. And I was just curious, kind of like, why you think it needs to be limited in that way? Because I think if you just thought about it as like token versus like a small proportion, then it's not surprising that the competence effect was very similar for the two versus three. Like to me, it's like, okay, one person versus you know two, three, maybe four versus you know half or something. And that's the interesting contrast to me where I would think that you would see this U-shaped effect um, and that actually maybe what you're observing is that even three is still kind of problematic. Yeah. Um, and 
And the warmth <coughs> part, it almost makes it seem like, I mean, if we were to just focus on the warmth part, it seems like, oh, well, the person in the second, um, in the two-part condition, in the two-person condition, is viewed more favorably. I mean, is this really so bad? But if, but if you think that, I mean, Grant, given that women are more likely to be seen as warm, and we just focus on the challenge around competence, I think it's actually just interesting to focus on that and maybe add a third condition that is uh, brings people out of the minority status to compare those three on yeah. competence. So let me do the first part first, which I'll say a little bit now, and then actually I have a slide where I'm talking a little bit about what is the mechanism, like why do we think that there's a difference, um, which will speak to it in this context of the perceiver. But one thing that I think is very special about the duo goes back to the conversation we were having before about there's me and there's this other person. And in the diversity literature, we talk a lot about sort of, you know, in-groups and out-groups. And that your in-group member, if you consider them right, an in-group member, uh, matters for you because it is more important for your self-esteem that this person connect with you. You want to be accepted more by your in-group member right, than by an out-group member. Um, or you believe that you will have more agreement right, with an in-group member than an out-group member. So for me, one of the powerful things about the duo context, why two, I think, is really important to understand, is that that's the context where like, there's only one other person that can do that for you. Right? As soon as there are three, like I can be friends with Hannah, I can be friends with Edith, like, you know, there's, I have more flexibility. When it's just Hannah and I, there is some sense in which not only do I have expectations from the majority members, right, about how I should be a woman or a whatever, but I also have some expectations from Hannah. That's what, that was my story, right? That I was putting my expectations on this poor other woman about what's the right way to be a woman in this context, right? And like, poor her, she has no idea I'm having this whole conversation with you guys. <laughs> right? She doesn't know, but it's, but it's real, right? Because you are suddenly having this like, okay, why, why am I not feeling so connected, right, to this person? Should, would I, am I gonna go over and sit next to her in this auditorium? I mean, it helped that I didn't know who she was, really, but like, probably not, right? So. I think that's that's an important reason why the two is a special case, right? And why solos are, are also a special case because there's nobody else there. Once you get to three, um, I mean, I think it's also interesting, but it, it is a different dynamic. And work by Simo would suggest like dyads and triads are like totally different things, right? It's a different dynamic with that. So that's part of the reasons why we focus on that. I just wondered if you might want to like empirically test and see if there is kind of like a critical inflection point at a certain level of like two to three, but maybe three to four, three to four, you know, I, I don't know. I know. So, and I, I'm with you on that too. One of the challenges uh, that I have, again, for me right now, I do think that this is a kind of, the dynamic is about being in the minority. So when you get to the four, then the overall group size to be, you know, consistent with our theorizing has to expand as well. And it starts to get more complicated as you think about what type of group context does that reflect in a real interaction? Because once groups get to a certain size, they're a little bit unwieldy. But I, I totally value and appreciate where you're coming from. Like, it is something that I ask myself as well. Okay, there and then. 
already give you some indication that what you're studying here generalizes across genders and across other potential minority groups. So if you have two men, three men yeah. in a women's group, I mean, I think there's theories which would suggest it could go both ways, yes. right? It could be high, not, not true for high status people, only for low status people because of what you just described, yes. but it could also generalize. Yes, no, I agree. So um, I am interested in that question. We, what, I am and I'm not, so that's, this is my challenge, right? Like, I am from an empirical standpoint, right? And from a robustness standpoint. But from a, what's happening on the ground standpoint, I'm really interested about the people who are in the groups that are truly underrepresented. So inevitably, you know, you're asked, like, well, what happens when the guy's in the minority? And I'm like, that's not the thing that we're struggling with at, you know, in parliament and boardrooms and whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think it's an unimportant question, but it's not the question that I want to push on. Mm -hmm. So I do struggle with that. Having said that, um, in other contexts of my work, I have manipulated that. I mean, even in that first, you know, the scenario study, like we did have the guys included as well, um, and. It is, it's more, 
complicated, right? There's, there is this dynamic of status, which I think is an incredibly important variable to study, uh, that can protect you from some of the expected negative outcomes, right, of standing out and being in the minority. Uh, I do think, though, that conceptually, I mean, let's see, a moment, um, that the theories, like the reason why I think the category becomes more salient should really apply quite broadly, right? That if there are two men, like, you actually will sort of notice it more, right, if they're in a group of women. Depending on the context, whether it's a context where, let's say, um, it's a jury, and we need to pick a foreman, that could still be a context where the men have an edge, right? If they think like, think man, think leader, right? Then being more masculine could actually be a positive for you. And I, similarly, I think being warmer could be a positive in a certain context. It's just that you know, those contexts are more limited and generally less valued. It's a bigger issue that we have. So, yeah, and, and actually my third study is about race, so, yeah, so we can talk about that too. Yes? I'm wondering, you sort of described um, your hypothesis from your own experience of what it's like to be the minority in the, in the larger group, but what's your hypothesis about um, how people view those minorities uh, uh, as a solo, as a duo, as a trio? Is it that if it's just one, you can't draw comparisons, but if it's two, you start to pick out the things that you know, are, are similar about those two, but when it's three, there is enough variation among three people that, that it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's messier, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, so I, I do think, yeah, so you'll see, uh, the, um, here we go, it's coming out, bam, slides. Uh, so yes, I think in the, the actual, in the interaction, right, there's definitely some of that, right, that you um, can see differences, right, more differences when there are three, uh, when there's one, it's the point that I was making before that like you are more individuated, and I'll talk about a couple reasons why I think that might be true. Like, there's some motivation to try to individuate people when they're the only one. Um, and for two, you may actually you may behave differently, right? I mean, you, so you may sit next to each other if you do feel some camaraderie. Um, but my other work suggests that you may actually be less likely to try to disagree with one another. Right, because it's sort of like a betrayal in a way, like I don't wanna, right? And so then that reinforces this idea that we're alike, right? It's like, well, we always agree. So, you know, the dynamics are quite complex, and I do think it feeds into this perception. But what I just showed you here, that's not this, right? They didn't do anything except be, and, you know, Jennifer just let. So there's also something about it that I believe is highlighting the category, right, of two, of the, the two belong to when there are two versus when there is just one. So let's, uh, this is, yeah, okay, so, yep, despite the similar contributions, the number of women in a group could impact how stereotypically feminine one of the women was viewed, particularly warm. And it suggests that two women are more categorized. So let's talk now about why that might be the case. So there's two theories that we draw from. One is the idea of impression formation, that when we interact with another and we're forming impressions, uh, there's a suggestion that we actually start by categorizing. 
and then we individuate. And the extent to which we individuate is affected by a couple of things. One, how much attention we pay to the person. So there's more attention paid to a solo. I mean, one, they are distinctive. It's easier to pay attention to them and like see their you know, idiosyncrasies. So that would increase the extent to which a solo is less categorized than a duo. And the other is motivation. So if you stereotype a solo, it may be an indicator of how you feel about all members of that category, right? People are concerned about being perceived as racist or sexist or whatever. So then in the con context where you're interacting with a solo, you may actually have more motivation to be careful and to pay attention to individual differences, uh, which could impact the extent to which that they are categorized and stereotyped by you. This one is, um, this is something that I think could certainly be true and that my future work, I really wanna try to tease that out, right? The extent to which the solo boost is about people being afraid to say, you know, she's really warm, right? Because I know if I say she's really warm, like that suggests that I'm, you know, stereotyping this woman and, you know, I'm not sexist, so I'm not gonna do that. So that's part of the future work. But I think this is part of the process. The other is this wonderful entitativity uh, construct. So entitativity is this, the degree to which a collection of individuals has the property of being an entity or a coherent whole, right? So usually when we think about entitativity theory, it's about whole groups, right? So like how much of a cohesive whole is this group? We're applying this to the subgroup context and suggesting, as I said before, that when you go from one to two, like two, you have a <coughs> subgroup, right? Before you didn't. So that's one thing that makes two more likely to be seen as coherent. The other thing is um, Bruce Simmel's work when you have two, if they divide, right, the whole thing falls apart, right? So like two needs, like the two need to be together right, and consistent for that to exist. If you have three and one leaves, you still have two groups. So we're arguing that a duo would be seen as highly entertaining. Okay. <laughs> Who came up with that? We're gonna need a new word. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the duo would be categorized more. Right, that it really suggests to you that these two are, you know, a pair. And in our paper, we talk about like our language around like two peas in a pod, and like something about the two for us that's very much a whole, right? That we don't see them as, as separate, separable. So this is that's our theorizing. I don't test those variables in this um, set of studies, but that's the direction we're moving. Okay, let me keep going because I want us to open up to other com questions and general conversation. So in terms of the impact of being categorized, so obviously the more categorized you are, the more likely you're to be stereotyped. And we know that that can lead to bias and performance evaluation. So if you're being evaluated in a context where the thing, it's stereotype is bad for you, then it's likely <coughs> that you will be evaluated lower. So that's what we're gonna look at. The other is that um, this being categorized can actually trigger group polarization where you see the two as sort of their own group and in contrast, right, like the men are different, right, than the women. And so one thing that we wanted to look at and that we could test in this upcoming study where we have people interacting is whether something like group cohesion is reduced 
in the context where there are two in, women in the group compared to one or three. Okay. Group, group cohesion within the larger group or group cohesion within, oh, obviously. The larger, the larger group. group. Yeah. Like how? Okay, so what do we got? We've got the Lego person <laughs> task. I don't know how familiar you guys are with this or not, but it's basically a task where uh, groups have to come together and uh, correctly build a Lego replica of a model that's on the table. Um, it's you know complex production task, so they're producing something. The way that it's set up is competitive because they're uh, doing it in teams and sort of competing against each other for time. Uh, it has to be correct, so if you put it together and it's wrong, your time keeps counting, right? It's like do it again until you get it right. So there's time pressure, and it's a male type task. So we thought that you know playing with Legos would be considered more male typed, but to, I mean, nowadays it's less, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was just looking at this Lego thing. Although I have to say, even my daughter says like, the Legos for girls are way lamer than the Legos for boys, mm -hmm. right? And they are, mm -hmm. like there's no question. They are, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, but nevertheless, we actually did a, a um, pilot and we had people read about this task and ask them to the extent to which they felt it was male typed. So outside observers also felt that it was significantly more of a male type task. Okay, so we've got interactive groups. So these are um, working young people who are in a program um, sort of thinking about getting an MBA. Uh, and so they're actual, actual real adults. Um, and here's our overall design. So we put together groups where we would have a solo, again this is gender, female, two women <coughs> or three women. And we have 21 groups, this is not a huge amount of groups. 22, oh no, that's not true. Uh, we've got, importantly, since we're looking at the evaluations made by men, for the solos, we've got 82 men, 26 men, and 14 men. So the solo sizes are imbalanced, but we have enough men, certainly, that we see differences, um, although I would love for those numbers to have been higher but the context limited us. Okay, so we're looking at men's evaluations and we asked them to, after they did this group task, evaluate all the members in the groups of this round robin uh, design on leadership and skills, which are more femininely stereotype relevant um, measures, and on effort, which is stereotype irrelevant. So it's not that women don't try hard. Uh, and then we also asked for them to evaluate the overall cohesion in the group. So what we're expecting is that on the stereotype relevant measures, duo women will be evaluated lower, so in leadership and skills, and that the groups will have less cohesion, be reported by the men to be less cohesive when they're two than one or three women, but that we wouldn't necessarily see that same effect for effort. All right. And what have we got? So, on leadership, which we measured, did the person make helpful suggestions, ask the right questions, guide the team, we found our significant effect that when a woman was a duo member, she was evaluated significantly lower on leadership than when she was a solo or a trio. When we looked at skills, this actually is a significant difference between the solo and the duo, and between the duo and the trio, it's marginal. So not as strong for skills. I do think leadership is a much stronger female stereotype, but nevertheless, 
And then on effort, we don't find a significant difference. Even though we still see you know, a dip in terms of the, the pattern, it's not significantly different. So how hard did the person work at the task? It didn't really matter if it was a solo duo or a trio. In terms of group cohesion, we did find a significant difference as well, that the men said that the group was less cohesive when there were two women in the group compared to solo or trio. This effect is also marginal. Part of the reason why is because there are much fewer, much smaller cell size in the trio condition, so there's a lot more variance. So even though it looks higher, it's, it's not significant. Okay, so our hypotheses were supported in that context. Um, we also asked a couple of other questions um, because we had the opportunity. So the women were part of these groups, and so we asked how stereotyped they felt. Mm -hmm. Now there are far fewer women, so I don't want to overinterpret, but we thought we would look at that as well. And then of course it's a performance task, so I wanted to present the performance results as well. We found a significant effect mm -hmm. that the women duos said they felt more stereotyped because mm -hmm. of their gender than the solo women or the trio women. So that certainly like, supported right, what we felt that we were seeing. And this is not significant. So the time to completion ranged huge from like you know, two minutes to 14 minutes. So there's a tremendous amount of variance. So it's not about the teams performing differently. The duo teams didn't perform worse than the solo teams or the trio teams. Uh, so there's something else that's going on. So, I know we're all like, man, right? Uh, so far, we've got female duo more stereotyped than a solo or a trio. As a result, they were given lower, well, let me not overstate that. In a gender diverse context, they were also given lower performance evaluations on stereotype relevant dimensions by their male peers when they were duos than solos or trios, and the men reported the groups as less cohesive, and the women said they felt more stereotyped. So, Consistent with our hypothesizing, not necessarily a positive story, especially in light of the fact that we flash back to the beginning, people, me, thought it would be better, right, to be one of two. And I do think that's quite troubling because if you expect it to be and then you get in that situation and it's not, like maybe we'll see some queen bee, right? We'll call it the queen bee because they're like, well, guess what? When there was another woman here, it actually wasn't better, right? Like they stereotyped me more, you know? I was, was more isolated, which is something I really want to explore. So we need to try to do something about this. Very quickly, of course, we were interested in moving beyond gender, so I'm going to do this super quick so that we do have time to talk. Uh, we wanted to look at race. Uh, we decided to start by looking at black men in the context of white men. Um, we know that blacks are also underrepresented in leadership level. And we decided to focus on two very common stereotypes of blacks as being unintelligent, lazy, unambitious and expected again that the target would be stereotyped more when they were part of a duo than a solo or a trio. So study three looks very much like study one, the same task, same sort of avatars, except that they're black males and white males instead of women and men. Uh, we looked at whites' perceptions of the black target, about half of them were female, the same sort of MTurk population, same basic design of the nine conditions between subjects, and we had these three measures that they used. We didn't want to use the negative terms, lazy, you know, mm -hmm. dumb, et cetera, because we thought that would 
so we reverse them. Okay, so this is what that avatar set looks like. This is our duo male with a 10 person group again. And same basic thing. We did not ask them how many blacks and whites. We thought that was too strong, but we did still have them you know, look at the group and say what they're wearing, etc. So he's Christopher, they go through the same steps, and then they assess him afterwards and give us our demographic information. So here we found, again, a main effect for the number of blacks and not an interaction for group size and uh, the number in the group. We control for gender and student status. What we found is that Christopher was significantly more stereotyped as a duo than a solo but not compared to a trio. So he was stereotyped more and it didn't diminish when he was one of three, um, which was not necessarily what we were expecting or hypothesizing, uh, but there's some other work that I looked at that looked at proportion, proportional representation in groups, uh, and it studied women and blacks, and it found that for women there was this positive linear uh, increase and as the proportion went up, women's performance evaluations got better. And for blacks, sadly, that effect was not true. I mean, they looked at organizations that had from 10% you know, to like 90% representation, and it wasn't until about 80% that the evaluations got better, which was very distressing to me <laughs> to see that effect. And their takeaway was maybe the stereotype of race is more generalized than that of women, that the stereotypes of women are more contextualized. It could also be that people have more exposure to women, and so you know, as they move into equality and then majority, there's a positive outcome. I can't say for sure, but given that, it helped me put that in a little more context. Yes. Just as a clarified question, were they the same like tasks that the people read? Like, yeah, the exact, exact, exact same thing. Same Just instead of saying Jennifer, it's a Christopher. And it was like, so they were basing intelligence off of their like little, okay. Yeah, exactly, not much, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like off of nothing, right? Yeah. I wonder if you would have gotten something different if you changed the name. From Christopher? Yeah, from Christopher. I feel like Christopher is a name that is really versatile, but if the name was like Abdul or something like that. I was like, did you watch Blackish last night? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this is a new uh, sitcom that's out, which I did watch last night. It's actually, it's, it's funny. I'm glad that it's on TV. So we picked Christopher on purpose, yeah. uh, in part because it was the, the like most common male name you know, in two oh, decades of time that okay. was consistent okay. with the age range. Yeah. Um, and also, this question's come up before, and I do think it's interesting, but I would be concerned. I mean, we know that names matter, yeah. right? There's definitely yeah. that research that says mm -hmm. you know, Jamal is. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I would be afraid <laughs> to do that and wonder if it's the name, like, it. what's pushing okay. the you yeah. know, stereotype. Um, but you're right, it certainly would solidify for them, right? Like the yeah. racial identity of the target. Okay. So. That's it for now. Race summary, so the black duo was evaluated more stereotypically than the solo, but for the black target, a subgroup of three did not seem to create a critical mass that helped alleviate this stereotyping effect. So overall, um, I think that 
you know, there's some suggested evidence here that duos may be subject to more stereotyping than solos. And that seemed to be consistent between race and gender. Um, and with three, there's other dynamics at play that we don't fully understand yet. But I do think that we need to start taking these things into consideration on a number of levels. I mean, for women, I think there's a lot of discussion about critical mass. In general, this term critical mass is kind of, you know, debated and, you know, questioned, et cetera. And I don't think we have a good understanding of what it is. Um, in the work that I talked about earlier by Conrad and Kramer, where they looked at women on boards, their conclusion was that three may be the critical mass on boards and that even the men on the boards were thinking about interacting with the women differently once there were three. Now, one challenge that we have is that the overall representation differs dramatically based on which group you're talking about, right? So women are about the only group where we can get to 50%, right? There are many other categories where we're not gonna be anywhere close. So even showing now that three was not enough for blacks, like three out of 10 is a whole lot. I mean, it's more than you're gonna see at your average you know, boardroom table. And if that wasn't enough, then we can't just depend on throwing more people in the room to solve these problems. We have to understand that there are these perceptual issues and dynamics at play that could be affecting how we see and interact with them and how they may even interact with each other that you know, have to be unpacked so that we don't negatively evaluate someone right, for reasons that have nothing to do with their actual outcome or competence or ability. So for us, uh, we're looking at other social categories. We actually were looking at uh, one of those avatar studies with political affiliation, which is you know, different. It's like red shirt, blue shirt. Um, but to see if that's a, an area where there's less concern that people may have about saying, you know, this person's liberal, this person's conservative, or we would see the outcome. I'm really, really interested in this question of how much support the majority shows the duo, whether they do sort of see them as different and withhold, whereas when there's a solo, we know that somebody needs to step up and interact with that person, and when we have two, we can be like, well, they've got each other, right? And we don't support as much, because I think that's very likely, based on what I'm seeing, and very disturbing. Um, and thinking about the organizational context, the you know, extent to which this is a competitive environment, um, or other factors of the organizational context that may impact this. And then we already talked a little bit about the dynamics between the members of the duo, which I, I think is just really important to understand more about what that looks like. That's a story for another day. So, I'd like to acknowledge my collaborators, Mary Kern and Judith White. Mary's at Baruch and Jews associated with Dartmouth. And thank you guys so much for your attention. Yes? Uh, first, thank you very much. That was really, there's a lot of things that I kind of experienced, but also things I hadn't thought about. So I have lots of questions. Um, but the one that I want to ask is um, those of us who might be a little earlier on in our career and might be more likely to, to join a, a pre-existing dynamic or um, become a duo maybe or something, um, how do you recommend like coming in and building like a positive environment and not necessarily having to like change the way you do things, it's, it's, there might be different styles of right, course, right, right. but you know, just being positive for everyone. 
So uh, I'd say a couple anecdotal stories inform my response. Uh, one is the experience of one of my collaborators who is a lesbian and went to work at maybe a law firm. And there was a one of the other, I don't know if they were partnered or not, but another employee uh, was also lesbian but was not out. And the only interaction they ever had was that person pulling her into the office and being like, don't ever talk to me, stay away from me. Right? So, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't recommend that. If it happens to you, like, what are you going to do? Right? I mean, this goes back to that issue where she was like, I don't want anybody thinking, right? Like, I've worked hard to keep that identity separate. So, I do think that you have to understand that there, you may, you don't know who you're interacting with yet. Right? So, in part, not to go in just thinking, like, oh, we're going to be friends, like, you know? Um, and to try to have some interactions, I think, offline would be helpful, right? To, for you to figure out, you know, who is this person, right? I mean, do you even like them, right? Maybe you don't even want to be their friend. <laughs> Maybe they're not cool at all. So, that's, that's one. Uh, the other anecdote, gosh, did I just lose it? Um, it comes back to me. But the other one essentially has to do with, um, oh, this is the other one. So this is from the boards of directors one again, where they talked to some boards where there were two women on the board and they talked to the women. And in a couple of instances, the women said, we actually work together, like we strategize, right? We don't agree, but we agree ahead of time about what we're not going to agree on. Right? Like we are trying to show that we're not the same and right, develop coalitions between and also find connections you know, between us and the majority and then find connections between the two of us. So that's another potential approach. But it all hinges on who the other person is, right? And how comfortable they feel about the situation. So I, I'm wondering about the, the difference between the gender and the race. Yeah. And, um, I'm debating to tell whether whether to tell my own anecdote, but um, see if I can get my the, the theoretical idea out first. But the um, so there is this interesting stuff about like gender and relationships, and this notion that women are more associated with interpersonal relationships and men with groups. Yeah. And I wonder whether two women um, could heighten the feminine stereotype by. Um, uh, I don't know, associating like girlfriend potential yeah. um, more than a threesome of girls, frankly, would, right? Mm -hmm. That um, whereas with guys, you know, the more, the more group they are, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. there isn't, they would be, their masculinity would be associated, frankly, probably more with the size of the group than with, you know, you wouldn't associate black men with, you know, two black men, two black men, right, super like buddies. Now, you know what right. I mean? Yeah, that's not. I don't know. So it's not part of the association set. Team, right? But but with guys, you associate them with teams. And, no, no, no. But like oh, masculinity is heightened in teams, whereas stereotype femininity is heightened no, in no. in duos. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So exactly. And so just for fun, I'll tell one. I will give on my tell one. Right. And um, ears could maybe guess who said this to me. But one um, senior faculty said to me when I was a junior faculty. So why do you co-author with women? Is it that you like to like 
talk about each other. <laughs> that terrible thing. But the idea was that we would kind of get together, and then my two, my you know, we would be kind of chatting and like you know, and that was his that was his you know mental image of my um, of, a, of of two women, two female academics collaborating together. And um, but I wonder whether that could be whether yeah, no, relational no, like stereotyping might that. be um, part of the story. Um, going back to Rachel's point, but there's clearly going back to Rachel's point. This really interesting thing where there's just the marginal effect of the duo on the stereotyping just a, is a story in itself, regardless of where the rest of the thing goes up. But with the two versus the three, I wonder whether. There's yeah. idea, but it, it really hinges in my mind on their belief of what the trio means versus the duo, right? And I actually really like your point that you just raised, Hannah. I think that that is more consistent with this question, right, of how do you see the two so that you see two, right, from the outside as really this, like, you know, cohesive kind of unit, right? I mean, you know, this is like the gossiping women or whatever, yeah. right? It's just like, it's very, right, tight unit um, in the total perceptual space. In other words, when I'm looking at those avatars, like what's happening in my head, right? That makes me see the two as different from the three. And I believe that it really is something to do with how you think they would act for real, right? Um, that the two category may also be highlighted, but that it's really more about how you think that they would behave in that context of the two versus the three. Then there's the actual interacting group where I think that people will behave differently. Right? I do think that two women in a group are gonna behave differently than three women in a group. I do think that, uh, let's say, you know, come into this room, there's men and like three women are coming in to sit among these men. If they're just two of us, I, I'm, think I'm much less likely to sit right next to the other woman. If there are three, like two could sit next to each other, and one can sit over there, like it's all good, right? Like it sort of, it frees you. And if, the, if that's true, and you behave differently, and the men observe that, then that is gonna affect their perception, right, of the group as well. So I think both things are at play. Yes? So I don't know if this is out of the scope of the project, but it made me think about um, if, the dynamics would change if there was something about the duo or one person in the duo's construct that spoke more to the majority than to the duo. So if you have two black women, but one is extremely wealthy and the group as a whole is extremely wealthy, but that other woman isn't, are those women likely to connect on that or is the group likely to see them coupled in this duo or is it like no because the class yeah. is so salient it, it, it almost kind of cancels the other yeah. one yeah no I, that's a really powerful question I think um, these are very interesting right ideas so think about that from two perspectives one 
I certainly think from the perspective of the majority, if there's something that, so let me say two things. So there's some work, and I can't remember the term right now, but that looks at. Um, fault lines? No, not the fault lines. Gosh. It's, it's more based in like sociological, and it looks at groups where there are two women, and there's this phenomenon where the women are, like, you almost try to separate them, right? Like, one's the queen, and the other one's like the, you know, the mother, right? So there's some work that talks about how when there are two, you actually assign them different roles, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something that the group does. So that suggests that, yes, there, we may be trying to distinguish them in some way. Now, if one of them can be distinguished in a way that resonates with the rest of us in the group, I do think that would be attended to. Yeah. Now, let's move that to the other domain, which is, ooh, what does that mean for the relationship between the two women? Yeah. Right? Like, I think it can be very dangerous and negative for how they would interact with each other, right? Because this is that, um, which model do we like better, right? <laughs> like model A or model B? Yeah. And who are we gonna talk to more? And you know, and then how do I navigate that? If I'm, either way, if I'm the one that they like or if I'm the one that they don't like, right? If they like me, do I feel like I'm betraying my other? Mm -hmm. right. So this to me is the, what's awesome actually in a way about this question, right? The, the dynamic of the duos which is also affected by, you know, those in the majority. Hopefully that answers the question. Yes. Well, Naisha's question actually um, it gets right at where I was trying to get also because in a sense I think what you're talking about, what you're getting at is intersectionality. Exactly. Um, yes. These things work together. And one thing that struck me about uh, uh, when you were studying race is that you limited it all to men, and that makes sense because you wanted to control for gender, right? Yeah. But but one of the ways I was curious, I mean, whether whether you could do uh, the same study with all black women, and whether that outcome, uh, whether that would generate the same <coughs> outcome, and it might actually be a way of testing what uh, Hannah suggested, you know, I mean, if, uh, in a way. Right, 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 right. If the black women may be seen differently when exactly. the, it goes to three, exactly. if they're also are they seen as women or are they seen? Yeah. As women? Mm -hmm. So it, that's. Are they seen as something I have to say so. Through this work, actually, I am starting to get involved in a little bit of intersectionality work. So I do have a parallel study to the black men with women. Uh, what we found was that they were stereotyped more as duos than solos, but on fewer dimensions. So we increased the number of dimensions on which we evaluated them. Um, and so, part, I mean, this is, intersectionality I love it I mean it's an interesting space but there are so many questions right now right yeah. about like what does all of this mean and are there specific stereotypes about the intersection of black women mm -hmm. or are they now seen in contrast to the rest of the context so if I'm in the context of men I'm seen as female from the context of whites I'm seen as black and we're starting to try to unpack that but our basic takeaway so far is that overall the women seem to be subject to less of these stereotypes that we associate with blacks than the black men are, and why, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah, That's so fast. Like, that might be the last question. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.
of thought, so thank you so much. Next Thursday, I hope you can join us, Sarah Iqbal. She's the program manager for, for, for Women, Business, and the Law from the World Bank is going to talk about women, business, and the law, uh, removing restrictions to gender equality. So we'll see you back next week. Thank you. Thank you.